The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, In case you didn't notice, and I'm sure you did, we're not in the Gospel of John right now, okay? I'm going to get back to John. I'm taking a break from John. We finished, uh, you know, the Lord's high priestly prayer there and uh, the Olivet Dis- I mean, the Upper Room Discourse. Yeah, the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse. And so I'm just taking a couple of weeks and want to hit on some things that, uh, you know, kind of been on my heart and uh, take the opportunity to talk about them. This morning, I want to talk to you about being an image bearer. All right? The most fundamental reality of human existence is that we're made by God in His own image to be His representatives in His created world. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that Yahweh created us to bear His image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, when we look at this text, I think one of the things we have to ask is, what is with the plurality language here? I mean, who is the us? Who is the our? Who's God talking to here? I mean, God says something. He's speaking to somebody. And He says, let us in an hour. Who's He talking to? Boy, it's quiet in here. He's talking to somebody, right? Y'all have read this text before, right? Okay, listen. This is a reference to God's supernatural heavenly family. His divine counsel. Now, if you're not familiar with the Divine Council, I don't have, I even begin to have time to go into that here. So, so what, I would, what I would say you should do is, if you go to the website, if you go under studies, and go to the very bottom of the studies, there's a link there for Divine Council, and I don't know how many messages there is now, there's eight or ten messages there on the Divine Council. If you've never studied that, it would be well worth your study. God has a heavenly family. God was not alone, all right? From Philo onward, Jewish commentators generally held that these plurals were used because Yahweh was addressing His divine counsel. Now, the early post-apostolic fathers, such as Barnabas and Justin Martyr, they saw these plurals as a reference to the Trinity. And I think that's how most Christians see these plurals today, and that's how they describe them. Well, let's talk about the Trinity. But recent scholars tend to agree that with the ancient Jewish opinion, for example, F.M. Cross notes this, in both Ugaritic, uh, Ugaric was a, was a place just right outside of Jerusalem there, and they, the things that they had in their, their whole setup was so similar to Judaism. It's, it's worth, um, we've learned a lot of stuff from the discoveries that they found in, in Ugaric. So Ugaritic and biblical literature... The use of the first person plural is characteristic of address in the divine council. The familiar we has long been recognized as the plural address used by Yahweh in his council. So, you know, this is something that most people understand. Erdman's Bible dictionary, for example, says the us and let us make man in our image refers to the sons of God or lesser gods mentioned elsewhere. And if you're saying lesser gods, what's that talking about? Again, go to the Divine Council, go to the site, look up Divine Council, do some study there, it'll be well worth your while. He says, here viewed as a heavenly council centered around the one God. And then they list Psalms 82 as a reference. Now here's the thing you've got to understand. If you read Psalm 82 in any Bible other than the ESV, you're going to miss it. I'm not sure about Young. Young's got it clear? Okay, Young's, you can usually count on Young's to put things clearly, but if you read it in any other translation, you're going to miss it. Okay? And it's almost like they make you miss it. All right? 
All right, in later uses, he said these probably would be called angels. All right, so God had a heavenly family before we ever came along. And the plural language here is important. Because we have to see, we look at this and we say, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to his heavenly family. And with his heavenly family, he's discussing creating us, his earthly family. See, God wanted us to be like his heavenly family. So what does it mean to be created in His image? Wow, I tell you, it doesn't matter who you ask, you're going to get different opinions on this. All kinds of people, what it, what the, you know, I've heard that people say, well, it's rational thought. Really? That's not really, I mean, some people, some people aren't a good argument for that. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of things that people come up with. But let, let's, whatever it means, we know that it includes both men and women. Okay, so God created man in his own image, and the image God created them, male and female, he created them. All right, it's equally possessed. You know, men have it, and women have it, and women don't have less than men. It's equally. Men and women are both created in the image of God. We also know it's not incremental, it's not partial. I got a little image of God. You know, no, that's not it. You either have it or you don't. Now, we also see from other texts that it's passed on generation, yeah, generationally. I knew I'd get that out if I tried hard enough. Notice uh, Genesis 9, 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So why aren't we supposed to kill people? Because men are made in the image of God. Now, remember, this Genesis 9, 6 is after the flood. This is many generations later, and man is still said to be made in God's image. Also, what we have to understand is this is after the fall. So the image includes all people, believers and non-believers. And we see here that it's wrong to murder. And I would say you could put abortion in there. Because we, mankind, are made in the image of God. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, the image is not an ability we have. I think the image is a status. See, God intends us to be His representatives on earth. That's our status. We represent Him. Look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, be fruitful and multiply. That phrase means develop the social world. Build families, build churches, build schools, cities, governments, laws. And then the second phrase, fill the earth and subdue it, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate. Because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, to build civilizations. So what does image mean? Well, our text might be better read, let us make man as our image. Now, I'm not making things up and sticking words in there that probably don't belong. In Hebrew, like in English, the preposition in can be used different ways. Okay, if I said... The spare tire is in the trunk. How am I using in? I'm using it for location, right? That's where it is. It's in the trunk. But if I said, I hit the curb, my tire is shredded in pieces, how am I using in there? Result. That's the result of hitting the curb. The tire is shredded. If I said, I drove her here in the car, Okay, I mean, that's the instrumentality. That's how I got her here, through the car, all right? If I said, I work in ministry, how am I using in there? I'm using in to denote function or role. In other words, I work as a pastor teacher. And the same is true in Hebrew. So this text in Genesis 1, we could say, let us make man as our image. I think in is better translated as as denoting function or role. We are to be God's agents. We are God's representatives on earth. 
So we represent Him. You got that? We are representing God. Now, here's what we have to understand. This image was marred in the fall. So now, I believe that only believers who are filled with the Spirit can bear the image of Yahweh. And we can only do this as we live godly lives. Oh, thanks. I can proceed now. <laughs> All right. I really have considered getting a cell phone jammer to put in here, okay? It's not a bad idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. As I said, this image was marred in the fall. And I think we understand that. So now only believers can bear the image of Yahweh. And we can only do this as we live godly lives. Now this representation, this idea is seen in Exodus 20 verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay? What does it mean to take the name of Yahweh in vain? People think this means you say God, you ask God to damn somebody, and that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's not what this is talking about. The word take here is the Hebrew word nasah. And nasah means to lift up or to bear. To bear the name of God is to be God's representative. All right? Don't bear his name in vain. Don't be his representative in vain. We see this. In 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those that are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Listen, Christians, we bear the name of Yahweh. We are His representatives, and we are to depart from iniquity because we are representing Him. We are to live lives of holiness. People are to see Yahweh in us. That's what we're here for. We're here to represent Him. So when they look at us, they should see Him. This is not going to be a match as you're going to like today, okay? Uh, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, Paul writing the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. This is a present imperative and has the idea to become. Become imitators of God. They are to develop continuously into imitators of Yahweh. Now the Greek word for imitator here is mimites, where we get our word, English word mimic, right? Mimic, we're to mimic, we're to copy something. What, this uh, kind of denotes what an actor uh, spends time and energy studying a character so they can reproduce this character. We can mimic this person. We can be the mimic. Now, speaking about the image of God, N.T. Wright states this, and I think it's helpful for our understanding to see this. He says, It seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in His world so that God can reflect His love and care and stewardship of the world through humans and so that the rest of the world can praise the Creator through humans. All right, he talks about an angled mirror, because when you look at a mirror, what do you see? Yourself, unless it's angled. Then what do you see? Well, it reflects off, and you can see somebody else in that mirror. We're the angled mirror. So when people look at us, what do they see? It's not us they see. They're seeing the reflection of God in that angled mirror. And so in other words, people, we're to be the reflection of God. We're to mimic God. We act like God. So when people see us, that's what God's like. Paul knew the importance of example in his teaching others. And so he told the Corinthians that he was their father in the gospel. And then he added this, I urge you, be imitators of me. Paul says, look, you guys, watch me do what I do. Why does he want believers to imitate him? Isn't that kind of vain? Doesn't that sound weird? Okay, he wants people to imitate him because be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, 
I'm imitating Christ. You see Him in me, so you imitate me. So people will see Christ in you. Paul was imitating Christ. And listen, we've learned this. Hopefully if we've learned anything in John, we've learned this. Christ is the perfect image of Yahweh. So he's imitating Christ. So people see Yahweh. Paul tells the Thessalonians, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Imitators of us and of the Lord. So Paul is living out this command that he's giving believers. He was imitating Christ. Notice what he told the Philippians. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice it. Do it. These things and the God of peace will be with you. This people, I think, is an excellent parenting verse, okay? You ever said to your kids, or maybe your parents say, don't do what I do, do as I say. Okay? Well, listen, people, that's not what, that's not biblical. It, follow me, whatever you see in me, do. Now, now we understand that there's, you know, things that your kids can't do that you do because of age and because of authority and stuff, but you're to be an example. And we're to all be an example. And that's why Paul says, look at whatever you saw me, you learned it from me, you received it from me, you heard it from me, do it. <laughs> I'm following Christ, you follow me. So he's just saying, do what I do. Would you say that to other people? People come to you and say, what about this Christianity thing? You say, just whatever I do, you do it. Any of you say that? The constant call to the Christian is to be like Yahweh. Again, we're image bearers. People look at us, they see Him. It's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. All humans are God image bearer. But as we said, since the fall, only believers who are walking in the Spirit can really do this well. Which means that we need to be doing a good job at this because lost man totally bears the image of God in vain. They don't demonstrate God. They don't act like God. They don't do the things that He does. So practically, what does this look like? Being an image bearer. Well, as Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty to imitate Christ. If He's compassionate, we as image bearers should be compassionate. If He's loving, we as image bearers should be loving. We're to display Him in all we say and all we do. We see some of this, what this image bearing involves in Paul's words to the Ephesians. In this text that was read this morning from chapter 4, 17 through 32, is really all about changing. It's about those changes which God has made possible and which we, by His grace, are to implement in our lives. Paul's saying, now you're Christians, stop living like that, start living like this. Paul's introducing a new pattern of thinking, a new pattern of living to his readers. They're no longer to live like non-Christians because they've been chosen, they've been changed, they've been converted. They are now to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. People, listen to me. This is just as important for us today as it was for them. People say, oh, he's talking to the Ephesians. Don't think you're going to skate out of that, okay? He was talking to the Ephesians. But this is Christian doctrine. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's giving the church instruction. We are the church of God. This applies to us. To not live in a holy manner is to grieve God. And that's what he says in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, who does it say we're not to grieve in this text? The Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's Yahweh, right? Okay, you guys got the good, good class. You're, we're, we're getting this down, okay? He is Yahweh. In verse 30, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Now, in context, this verse is referring to the time of the Exodus. 
The presence of Yahweh is interpreted in this passage in terms of the Holy Spirit. But the Exodus narrative makes it plain that Yahweh Himself led His people through the desert and He gave them rest. Exodus 33.14, and He said, My presence, Yahweh speaking, My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Yet Isaiah unequivocally asserts that it was the Spirit of Yahweh who gave them rest. In 63.14, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So who was it that gave them rest? Was it Yahweh or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes. (laughs) You guys are batting a thousand today. I love it. Okay, listen. Yes, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Yahweh is the one true God and He exists in three persons. The Trinity is not something the Christian church made up. I hear that so many times. I'm tired of hearing it, people. Well, that's an invention of Christian. No, it's not. You go back and look at the Tanakh, and you'll see this idea back there. For example, let's look at Isaiah 63, the passage that Paul quotes from here. In uh, 63, 9-14. Now, I've cut some parts out, not because I'm trying to hide anything. I'm trying to fit it all on one screen. You have a Bible, hopefully you follow along and you'll see, okay? But it says, The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Where is he who brought them up of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? The Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourselves a glorious name. Here we see Yahweh. Here we see the angel of Yahweh, the angel of His presence, who is the Son. And we see the Holy Spirit. So there we have all three members of the Godhead. This is the Tanakh. This is, not, this is a long time before the church ever came along, people. Psalm 78 is recounting the same event that Isaiah 63 talks about. Notice what it says. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of God. The Holy One of Israel. Alright, so they rebelled and they grieved. The verbs here, rebelled and grieved, are the same verbs used in Isaiah 63.10. Alright, and here he says it's the, they grieved against the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh and the Holy Spirit are one in essence. Now, in the New Testament, we learn that the Spirit and Yeshua are one in essence also. For example, Acts 16, 6 and 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Yeshua did not allow them. So the Spirit is Yahweh, and the Son is Yahweh, and the Father is Yahweh, we see the same thing in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 8, 1-3. As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, the hand of Yah- the Lord Yahweh fell upon me there, and I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So we have Yahweh in verse 1. Then in verse 2, we see a divine man. Then in verse 3, we have the Spirit. These three figures co-identify as Yahweh. See, the Jews were monotheistic. They served one God, who was Yahweh. But they realized that Yahweh was the Godhead made up of more than one divine being. Now, sometimes preterists ask, well, is the Holy Spirit still with us today? Do we still have the Holy Spirit? Of course The whole Godhead is with us. You can't separate these up and divide them up. We dwell in the presence of the triune Yahweh. So when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we grieve Yeshua, we grieve the Father. And we grieve them when we live like the unsaved. According to this text, we grieve them when we don't tell the truth. When we let our anger control us. When we steal, when we're selfish, when we tear others down with our speech instead of building them up. 
In verse 31 and 32, Paul uses six terms to describe the old sinful behavior that we're not to be associated with. Then he uses three terms to describe the new godly behavior that we are to demonstrate. And finally, he gives us the motive or the reason why we should adopt this behavior. Verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he begins this passage with a command and he lists six things from emotions to the reactions that come from them that are to be put away. Put away is from the verb iro, and it means to lift with a view to carry. But it also means to take away or remove. Put away has the sense of a word picture. Some commentators associate this with, uh, it's a landlord putting out an undesirable tenant. You're not, you're not doing too good. You've got to find a new place to live. Put it away. The word all is used twice here. It's at the beginning all bitterness and at the end all malice. and represents the word all for, it's used twice for emphasis. All right? All these evil dispositions are to be put off, every one of them, no exceptions. Literally, it says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be taken away from you. The verb is passive, and this tells us that this is something we can't do in our own strength. We can only do this as we trust, walk in the power of the Spirit. Okay, In the flesh, we can't do this. So Paul moves from a resentful inner attitude of bitterness through its outward expression and outbursts of rage, seething anger, to yelling abusively, that's clamor. Then he mentions spreading our anger by slander, and he concludes with a catch-all term that covers all forms of anger, namely malice. So let's start with bitterness. This is from the Greek word pekria. It can refer to a bitter taste of plants, and with reference to the temper, it may mean bitterness or resentment. Phillips renders this word resentment, and the New English Bible translates it spite. Barclay defines this as long-standing resentment, a spirit which refuses to be reconciled. In effect, bitterness is the bearing of a grudge against another because of some wrong we believe that's been committed against us or against another. So we're bitter, we're carrying this grudge around with us. And we need to realize that Paul's commands here imply that you have been mistreated. You got that? Okay. You're not going to be bitter if everybody's treating you the way you want them to. All right? You're not going to be harboring malice if others were really nice to you. You wouldn't need to forgive others if they haven't wronged you. So Paul is showing us how to respond in a godly way as an image bearer in an ungodly world where people are going to wrong you. And guess what? It's, you say, well, that's on the outside, but boy, the church, we're safe, right? <laughs> no, we're not, okay? You're going to get hurt in the church. You're going to get hurt by people who are supposed to know better and do better, sometimes purposefully, sometimes accidentally. Wrath is from the Greek word thumos. The NIV translates it rage. It's derived from a word meaning to boil. You get that, right? It refers to outbursts of anger when somebody just, they boil over. I can't think anymore. They boiled over. They just, it, they explode. It's used to describe people in the synagogue in Nazareth whose rage at Yeshua drove them to try to throw him over the edge of the cliff in Luke 4. It's used of rage of the mob in Ephesus that led to the riot against the Christians in Acts 19. Then we have the word anger from the Greek word orge with reference to sinful human anger. Wrath and anger are largely synonymous. If there's a nuance of difference, wrath is kind of a sudden outburst of temper, whereas anger refers to a more settled attitude, often with the purpose of revenge. You understand that? You get mad at somebody, you're like, how can I hurt them? How can I get even with them? How can I fix this? We are all aware of the problem of wrath and anger in our society. <laughs> My word. I don't care what you say, you're wrong and you're going to cause an uproar, all right? We frequently read about road rage, right? Sometimes the extreme where somebody cut in front of you, they were a little too close, so you're angry and you blow the horn and you scream at them when they pull out their gun, next thing you know, someone's dead. Why? Because you thought that road belonged to you. 
It's sad. It's sad. Over a minor little frustration, and it escalates, and boom. People are dead. Someone's in jail. You know, the distinguishing mark of sinful anger is selfishness. And here's why you get angry. I didn't get my way. They violated my rights. I demand my rights. And that's what happens when we're on the road. We're driving down the road. All of a sudden, this person pulls in front of you that shouldn't. And hey, that's my road. And you're angry because you're selfish. You think you own it. You don't. I know you pay for it. But so do other people. We have to share the road. Okay? And it's amazing how, you know, as James says, out of the same mouth, produce blessing and cursing. He said, this, this shouldn't be, brothers. This shouldn't be. At the instant you begin to feel angry, you've got to deal with how you think. You've got to stop enough to think, you know, God is sovereign. He's allowed this difficult situation for my training in righteousness. God is trying to teach me in this instant. And any anger that I express towards another person is really anger towards God who has providentially caused this. Then we have clamor. It's from the Greek, kroge. It refers to loud, angry words where people are screaming at each other. It includes cursing and calling someone abusive names. It comes from a word that means to scream. I'm sure none of you know anything about this experientially, so let's move on to slander. Slander is from the Greek word blasphemia, from which we get our word blasphemy. This Greek word is also used for blasphemy against God. But here it refers to speaking evil about someone else because why? You're angry. Speaking against another person to cause injury to their reputation. When bitterness has moved onward to wrath and anger, then they move into clamor, and clamor often moves into the attempt to injure or destroy another person. Just progressive. Someone did you wrong, you're going to get it right. Malice. It's from the Greek word kakia. It's a general term for wickedness or ill will towards another person. It's a desire to harm the person either emotionally or physically. When coupled with slander, the intent is to harm the person's reputation or relationship with others by smearing them. You know, sometimes you can say something about someone that's totally untrue and you still damage them, their reputation. Paul commands us to remove all six of these sinful attitudes and actions. They characterize unbelievers. They have no place with those who are image bearers of Yahweh. Listen, we misrepresent our Father when we act like this. Have you ever heard someone say about someone's behavior and they say they're a Christian? You ever heard that? They're justified in doing that. That's just, because if you are a Christian, you shouldn't be doing those things. Paul's pattern here is not only have a stop doing evil behavior, but to begin practicing godly behavior. He says earlier in the chapter, we're to replace lying with telling the truth. We're to stop stealing and instead go to work and help those who have need. We're to stop using unwholesome words and instead use words that build up, that use words that give grace. So here sinful anger is to be replaced with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Can you imagine what would happen if all Christians acted this way? Instead of the churches continually being emptied today and falling apart, I think that more people would be like, hey, this is a pretty interesting group. They're kind. They're, they forgive each other. They're tender-hearted. The Greek word translated be here means to become. It's a present imperative verb indicating an ongoing process. The process begins when you choose to accept responsibility for your sin rather than blaming others for it. At that point, you begin to trust the Spirit and to strengthen you to be the kind of person that God wants you to be. Be kind to one another, he says. The Greek word for kind here is Christos. 
That sound like something? Christos. It means to show oneself useful, to act benevolently. Benevolently. I just washed my tongue. I can't do a thing with it. All right. The verb itself speaks of activity. Active goodwill. It's being useful to somebody else's good. Always trying to do what's helpful to the other person. It involves sacrifice. Now, this word kind was the rallying attribute for Christians in the early church. And one of the reasons for that is because the word Christos looked and sounded so much like Christos, which is Christ. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We're to be like Christos or we're to act Christos, okay? Kindness was the overwhelmingly evident attribute of our Lord Himself. Okay, no doubt. He said of himself, my yoke is easy. And easy is the same word used here for kind by call, Christos. Kindness is not just a feeling. Kind people are easy to take. They're not harsh. In the New Testament, the verb appears only in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, but the noun and the adjective for kindness occur repeatedly in Paul's epistles. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. He's telling us about love. Here's what love is. Love is patient and it's kind. It's patient and it's kind. That's what love is. He's telling us that the loving Christian is kind. Now, in our cruel and unkind society, we have unlimited opportunities to show the world who God is through our kindness. Clement of Rome wrote an epistle to the Corinthian church in which he quotes a saying of Yeshua. We don't know if Yeshua really said this, but he quotes it. He says, as you are kind, so will you be shown kindness. But that's true, isn't it? How often is it that when we act unkindly towards others, the unkindness comes right back to attack us, right? The writer of Proverbs put it like this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Man, I've seen that proverb fleshed out I don't know how many times. I've bet my life on that proverb at times. I've been in situations where I said, I'm just going to, I consciously planned, you know, in a hostile situation, I'm going to answer kindly. And it took a while, but eventually I won them over. And, And I'll tell you what, it's hard to keep being harsh when you get kindness back. But our natural response is, You're ugly to me? Guess what? I'm ugly right back to you. And then what? It just snowballs. A soft answer would be responding in kindness. Harsh words would not be kind. They just stir up another person's anger. You know, the New Testament has has a lot to say about the kindness of Yahweh. As His children, again, we're here to bear His image. We're here to reflect His... Look at Luke 6.35. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. Here the word kreistos is translated kind, and in Romans 2.4 the same word is translated good. Kindness and goodness are so closely related that they're often used interchangeably. We could translate kind as good. The kind person does good. They are useful. So here, Yahweh is kind. He does good. He's useful. He's helpful. Gracious to people. We're called to be like Him. We're to be kind to all. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. This is the same Greek word, kreistos. We're to be kind to one another. We're to be good to each other. We're to be gracious to each other. Now, tell me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think the first test of Christian kindness should be where? In the home. Right? Sadly, that's usually the last place it is. Because when we're out in public, we're like, I got to be. I got to keep the image up. At home, you're like, tired of keeping this image up. I'm going to be me. And it's not too pretty, all right? I mean, married people, we're to be kind to each other. 
Children, you're to be kind to your parents. Parents, you're to be kind to your children. It's vital to our Christian witness. And I think the place that we should learn to practice kindness is in the home. It's in the home. I think Clement of Rome was correct when he wrote, as you are kind, so you'll be shown kindness. Just as unkindness sets off a chain reaction of unkindness, so the act of kindness sets off a chain reaction of kind events. Kindness is contagious. I read this in a newspaper. I know it was a, a magazine article. I verified the magazine printed this article. Snope says it's not a true story, but there's a lot of going back and forth on it. You know, Trump was in his limousine and he broke down, and this man came along, you know, and talked to the show, what's the problem? And the guy helped him get the limousine running, get the thing going. And Trump, he didn't know Trump was in the back seat. Trump was in the back seat. And so Trump rolled down the window and said, come here. And he goes, I appreciate you stopping to help us. I appreciate your kindness. What can I do for you? And the guy's like, nothing. I don't need any. No, what can I do for you? So the guy said, okay, I'll tell you what. Would you send a bouquet of flowers to my wife? She would really appreciate that. I sure I'll do that. Here's my address. So he gave Trump his address. The bouquet of flowers came with a note said, appreciate your act of kindness. Uh, along with these flowers, I've paid off your mortgage. Like I said, there's a lot of controversy of this. Trump said it's true. Now, that doesn't make it true, I know. But, <laughs> but there, like I said, there's a lot of conflict around that story. But I'm thinking, it's true, people. When you act kind towards somebody, you know, people, they, they, they so appreciate that. You know, especially in a hostile situation, when you're kind, they just, they're thankful for that. Herbert Prochnow said, you may be sorry that you spoke. <laughs> yep. Sorry you stayed or went. Sorry you won or lost. Sorry you thought the worst. Sorry so much was spent. But as you go through life, you'll find you're never sorry you were kind. You ever been sorry? Oh, God, I wish I wasn't so nice to that person. You ever, hopefully you never felt that, people, okay? Think about how kind Yahweh has been to you. And gratitude for all that He has done for us, we're to be kind to others, we're to bear that image. Think about how we'll be able to influence others for the glory of God when we treat them with kindness. People, we can live this way, okay? God wouldn't ask us to if we couldn't, but we, have to, we can only do this as we trust in the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit. We have to choose to be kind to others while trusting the Lord to provide the strength that we need to do this. Now, let me ask you something. Where is it today that most believers come in contact with non-believers? Nope, I don't. I disagree. Work. You can. We'll debate this later. But, huh? Because you don't. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that's that's pastoral abuse, people. Okay, I'm going to call the pastor board and report all of you. Okay. <laughs> Where is it that we come in contact with unbelievers the most? Think about it. <laughs> okay, that's that's definitely true, but here's what I'm looking for. Social media. Is that true? Am I right? Now that you know that true, that you think do you, do you know of a place where you come in more contact with unbelievers than in social media? More, huh? More people, right? So when you're on the internet, Facebook, Google+, Snapchat, Twitter, there's so many I can't even name them all now, okay? I got to ask you this, are you kind? Right. (laughs) That's the truth. I see so much unkindness on the internet among Christians. I know it grieves Yahweh. And listen, listen, this text doesn't say be kind to those who agree with your political or religious opinion. Be kind to those people. The rest of the jerks, just blast them. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. 
You know, it's just people, be kind. Why is it that on the internet, you're in a chat room or something, and someone says something you disagree with, and you're blasting them, you're calling them names, you're belittling their character, you're attacking them in all kinds of ways because they disagree with you. Why would we do that? You know, you wouldn't do that face-to-face. One reason is you'd probably get punched in the face, okay? But somehow behind a desk, I'm behind a computer, you can't see me, I'm going to be nasty. The world's watching people. The world's on social media. They watch the Christians bicker back and forth. How many of you know what Proverbs 17.28 says? Anybody know that off the top of your head? One of those verses I like to memorize because it's one of those very important verses. No, that's not it. That's probably that's six, chapter six. Nope. It says this. Mark this down, people. Even a fool. So all of us can fit in the category. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, what's it say? Is considered wise. Hey, how about that? You want to be wise? You want people to think you're wise? All you have to do is keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I mean, really, this verse is important to me. I think about this all the time. I'm on the internet, and I'm like, I want to respond to that. And I'm like, even a fool, when he keeps quiet, is considered wise. Sometimes, people, we just need to not say things because they're not kind. And if you can't say anything kind, my dad used to always say that to me. Still sticks with me. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Dad, you... Cut out half my time talking, you know? It's like, but he always said that to us, all right? So not only are we to be kind, we're to be tender-hearted. This is from the Greek word, eusplagnos. I'm going to test you on that one later, okay? It comes from the Greek word bowels, which to the Hebrew, the bowels were the center of emotions. And I get this, and I think so do you, because you ever been really upset, you feel it in your gut. You get that feeling. To be tender-hearted means to have a deep gut feeling for one another. Care about them. Have genuine concern for another person's well-being. It means to be sympathetic to the needs of others. It's the opposite of being callous. If you're tender-hearted, I guarantee you one thing's going to happen to you. If you're tender-hearted, you're going to get hurt. So the next thing he says is forgiving one another. Be tender-hearted. And guess what? You're going to get hurt if you're tender-hearted. So forgive one another. This is the Greek word, kredzomai. Most English translations render this to forgive one another. But, and I think that's a legitimate translation, but not the normal rendering of kredzomai. It would be more like, be gracious to one another. The concept is broader than forgiveness, but it definitely includes forgiveness. If grace by definition is something we don't deserve, Forgiveness is acting towards others in a way they don't deserve. Instead of holding a grudge that develops into bitterness, we're to forgive those who wronged us. People, if you live in this world, if you have any contact with anybody else, you're going to get hurt. And therefore, I think one of the predominant features of Christianity is forgiveness. We have been forgiven. We are to be forgiving people. That, you'll be an image bearer when you're forgiving people. And the word used here points to the fact this is undeserved. In other words, well, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. <laughs> That's what forgiveness is about. You don't need to forgive people that didn't hurt you. It's people who hurt you. None of us are perfect. We all sin and we're all going to hurt each other. Like I said, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been hurt by a Christian? Let me ask, let me make it simpler. How many of you have never been hurt by a Christian? <laughs> okay, then I guess forgiveness is a pretty important part of Christianity, right? You can count on being hurt just like you can count on death and taxes. And when we are hurt, how will you deal with it? What do we do? Well, Peter knows that when you forgive someone, chances are, guess what? That could turn around and do it again, right? So he asked the Lord this question. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now listen. Peter understood the tendency of man to fail. He knew very well. So he asked, how many times do I forgive him? 
Seven. And you say, that's not a whole lot, Peter. It might not seem like a lot to us. Peter was going way beyond the Jewish requirement. I mean, he thought, I'm going to get a pat on the back for this one. Seven? And he's waiting like, pat me on the back, Lord. That's good, right? No. Rabbi Jose Ben-Hanna said, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must do it not more than three times. Rabbi Jose Ben-Judah said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive. The Jewish Talmud said a person was to forgive three times, and that's it. So the Talmud contained rules and instructions, which, in addition to the Tanakh, the conduct of the Jewish nation was regulated. Now, the Jews had such a high view of the Talmud that they began to place it above Scripture. Kind of like what folks do today with church creeds and constitutions and doctrinal statements. We, you know, our church teaches this. Well, that's okay, but what does the Bible teach? That's really more important than anything, right? So Peter really felt he was doing the right thing. And so Yeshua said to him, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. Okay? It'd be hard to keep track of that. Seven times seven is what a lot of translations say. The idea is here is not an exact number. It's just, it's too high to keep track anymore. You're like, oh man, was that the 400th or the 402nd? I'm, I'm confused. I don't know when to stop forgiving it. No, you're not supposed to. That's the point here. You don't keep track. You keep forgiving. Yeshua confronts Peter with the truth that the spirit of forgiveness doesn't know boundaries. He's saying, don't keep track. Forgiveness is the mark of a loving person. They just forgive. I really think that, and I, I don't know that I can prove this, but I think when the Scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart, I believe that's what it's about. David was a forgiving person. He was wrong by a lot, and he had the power to take revenge. But he was a forgiving person. You know, the deeper you've been hurt, the more difficult, of course, it's going to be to forgive. Some believers that have been abused emotionally, physically, or sexually as children by their parents or some trusted family member. Some believers have children who were abused by their mate or a family member. Some have been betrayed by an unfaithful spouse who they loved and cared for deeply. These kinds of wrongs are not easy to forgive people. That's why I see Christianity is supernatural. It's supernatural. This is not something you do in your flesh. It's not something you do in your humanness. You trust the Spirit. If you're a Christian, seeking and granting forgiveness is not optional. To not forgive hinders our relationship with Yahweh, and it mars His image in the world. When someone wrongs you, I think it helps to control your anger and to make you ready to forgive if you remember that Yahweh is sovereign. His purpose is your ultimate good. Romans 8.28 says all things work together for good, right? When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, he could have come, become a very bitter... I mean, that's people, that's a cause for bitterness. My brothers hate me. They talk, I'm in a pit. They threw me in. I'm listening. They're talking about killing me. Yeah, let's kill them. Let's do that, you know. I mean, my brothers. And then they take me and they sell me as a slave. And I end up in prison for years. Well, now, I'm the most powerful man in Egypt, okay, second only to Pharaoh. I got total control. He could have become, he could have done, and he played with them a little, I'll guarantee you that, okay? He messed with them a little bit. I don't blame him for that, all right? But he chose to forgive his brothers. And after their father died, you know, the brothers were freaking out because, like, dad's keeping Joseph in check. Now dad's gone, he's going to nail us. But Joseph acknowledged God's sovereignty and goodness when he said to them, and people, this is a verse, Genesis 50, 20 is a verse everybody should have memorized, okay? Joseph said to them, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? In other words, it's not my job to take vengeance. It's not my job to act against you. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Was that true? Did his brothers mean evil? They, they hated him. They wanted to kill him. They sold him as a slave. Joseph's acknowledging that. Listen, how can you acknowledge that and not want to get even, Joseph? You meant evil against me. Well, watch what he says. 
God meant it for good. The same exact act. They wanted to hurt him. They hated him. God was doing something good. What was God doing good? He was sending Joseph ahead of them to prepare for them to feed them. They were acting evil, trying to kill the very person that God's sending to protect and care for them. He says, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. People, again, Genesis 50, 20 is a verse you just, it will help get you through life. Because people are going to hurt you. And sometimes they're going to mean to hurt you. You meant evil. But you remember, but God meant this for good. God's using them in my life. So you can go thank them. Thank you for hurting me so deeply. God is moving me along through that. Joseph's theology is what carried him through life, people. You know, people, so what's the importance of theology? Listen, you know God, and you'll get through life a whole lot better. And theology is all about God, okay? So no theology. Understand God is sovereign. He's in control of every event. This didn't happen by accident. He's in control. So let's wrap this up. How are we to forgive? I mean, what's the standard? Forgive one another like, um, oh, that's too high. Can we get another standard? As God in Christ forgave you. Wow. That's the standard. Not somebody else, how somebody else responded, what somebody else did. That's the standard. Forgive each other the way God did. According to the Bible, we were God's enemies. We didn't like God. We hated God. We violated so many things of His priesthood. He loved us when we were ungodly. Biblical forgiveness is a decision to release the offender from the guilt of his sin. To refuse to bring up the offense or use it against them. To refuse to think about the offense. To refuse to talk about to others about the offense. And to be reconciled to the offender if possible. I say if possible, it's not always possible. Well, how do we live like this? By walking in the Spirit. If you can't do this, you're not walking in the Spirit. Because we have to depend on Him. We have to trust in Him. One way to help is memorize verses that really speak to you. Like verses like this. You know, next time you're tempted to go on the keyboard and lash somebody, think of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. It's hard to say mean things kindly. All right? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We memorize verses and the Spirit brings those to our mind and guides us and leads us. We need to depend upon Him. We need to trust in Him. When your mind, you know, when you want to jump to anger, you, these verses, the Spirit will, like I said, bring them to your mind. Think about this, believers. If we could be a community in the midst of this world, a community of people who never lie but always speak the truth, a community of people who never get angry so that it's a sinful anger but always act in love, if we could be a people who never steal but share everything we have, if we could be a people who never speak hurtful words but always minister grace to people who are listening, if we could be to those who have no bitterness, no wrath, no anger, no clamor, no your speaking, but if we're characterized by kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness, you think the world would be halfway willing to listen to our message? They would see Yahweh in us we would be as image bearers. And when you do that, you open the door to share the gospel. I think, I think one of the, and I've heard other people say this, I think one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is Christians. I think it is. You know, you claim to be an image bearer of your God. If your God's like you, I don't really want Him. We're image bearers, people. The things we say the things we do, the business we conduct is to reflect to the world our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Lord, this is, this is tough stuff, Father. I think we all know it's true. You know, we all fight it daily. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with human desires of vengeance and anger and Lord, we're, we live in an angry society. God, help us to stand out from society, to be different. 
to be image bearers. Lord, when people look at us, may they see that angled mirror. They see us as a reflection of you, who you are, and be drawn to you, Lord. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for our patience with us as we continually don't live up to what we're called to be. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Uh, Gary Cole asked a question. He said, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Ephesians 4.31 says, put away anger. Those two passages appear to contradict each other. Is verse 26 about righteous anger? If so, explain the difference. Yes, there are, there, that is the difference, Gary. There is a righteous anger that is about, I get angry about things. I get angry that this country takes my money, my tax money, so they can kill unborn people. I get really angry about that, okay? I believe that's a righteous anger. Now, I'm not blowing up abortion clinics. I'm not even allowed to say that. I don't know. You know, I'm not, you know, but we need to, we need to educate people. We need to kindly talk to people. We need to talk to pregnant girls who are dealing with, you know, a very emotional time in their life and not attack them, but say, listen, there's people who would love that baby. You know, if you kill that baby, you might really resent that. That is a real baby. Give them, educate them and help them. There's a, there's a righteous anger. But too often, our anger is selfish. We're angry because you offended me. You did something to me. So, you know, if it's selfish, it's not righteous. But we should be angry about some things, people. We just should be. We live in a culture that's moving further and further away from God, and there's things that are happening that should make us angry. But that doesn't mean, again, we don't act in anger towards those people. They just don't know. You know, and that's why... Again, you know, we damage our cause because we, we go into attack mode. And I think, a, I think a lot of Christians are really sincere in this. They just don't know. I feel like God says this, and so i got to be a, you know, a bearer of God's Word, and i got to beat Him over the head with it. No, you really don't. You just need to be an image bearer. You need to reflect the image of God in their life. Be kind to them, be loving to them, and let them see the Lord in you. <laughs> David? Um, do you know what the difference is between um, mankind being created in the image of God and Genesis 5 3? Um, it says, Adam lived 130 years, father the son in his own likeness after his image. Yeah, I think that's talking about the same thing. I mean, Adam was created in the image of God. His son was created in his image, which was the image of God. And I think that's the whole thing. The image, we're all image bearers. We're everyone, believers, non-believers. But again, non-believers have no chance of pulling us off. So it's up to us. So we reflect to them. But wouldn't it kind of be, I kind of get just this answer, that was said after Adam's sin. So then wouldn't that mean that the image bearing of his kids were going to be in Adam's image? Losing the image of God, which was later given back to them through Christ. Which is one was trying to make a distinction. That's what I've always. Oh, okay. I see what you guys are saying. Right, Genesis. Make, he's saying that this lie was, you know, in His image. You know, I don't know because see, the thing is, whether you are, I think Genesis nine makes it clear that whether you are, you know, a child of God or not, you still bear the image. All mankind bears the image. That's important. Okay, because if we lose that, if we say, well, only Christians are in the image, well, then abortion's okay for non-Christians, right? See, the reason abortion is wrong is because it's murder. And the reason it's wrong is because they're in the image of God. They're created. So if you make it about anything other than function, then you're saying, well, you know, like people want to say it's rational thought. The image of God is we have rational thought. God has rational thought. The animals don't. So we're in the image of God. Well, does an infant in the womb have rational thought? No. So they're not in the image of God, so then it's okay to kill them. No, it's not. Stan? Uh, I think Lincoln said that, I'm not sure, but it's, it's better to uh, be thoughtful than to open your mouth and then... He proved one, right. <laughs> yeah. i got to start all over. Y'all didn't pay attention. I'm going to start from the beginning. Yes, Anthony. We all know, you know, um, we know that God is before us, you know, in, in a lot of stuff, and, uh, and everything. And, um, but, you know, it's like, we have to understand in season, too, there's a season for everything. And with, even with knowledge, you know, by uh, my understanding, it's, it's, it's like we want to know things before, like we want to jump in front of God. 
on stuff. Like he's the drum major, read the band first. <laughs> the drum major is usually in front of him. So you're saying we should follow him? Is that what you're saying? I, I would, I would, I would agree with that. We are. We are to follow Him. That's the whole thing. And that's what I mean by walking in the Spirit. I mean, we we got to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading and follow the Spirit. The Spirit will empower us to do what's right when we're trusting Him. You know, that's what it's all about. It's a trust relationship. You know, this is... And again, we have to understand, people, Christianity is supernatural. And I've read some stories about forgiveness where mothers have forgiven their child's killer, gone to jail, preached the Gospel to their child's murderer, and then this, this murderer got out of prison and the mother and them became close friends, you know. Can you imagine that? See, that's supernatural. That's what we're talking about, you know. I'm not talking about, well, I forgave them. They said something bad about me. No, I'm talking about serious infractions and people were willing to forgive. That's supernatural. And that's what it's all about.